Well, good evening. Let's, um, let's begin with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together and to uh, continue to um, consider from your word what you revealed concerning yourself as our triune God. Lord, we pray that you would give us understanding that we might understand how to relate to you as Father. We pray that you would give us wisdom so that we might know your Son and glorify you as we give glory to him. Pray, O oh Lord, that you would send your Spirit so that he might work in us to give us this wisdom and understanding. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to begin uh, by reading a little bit from Romans 1, and then we're going to go back to Matthew chapter 28. But uh, I want to read the opening to Paul's letter and um, reflect briefly just on a, a few things that he says. In Paul's letter to the Romans, he says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of the name among all, his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The reason I wanted to look first at this passage was because it does help to introduce something of what we've been talking about and also serve as a segue to um, what, where we'll be going in the future, uh, in future studies together as we uh, pivot only slightly, if you will, uh, from our discussions of the doctrine of the Trinity to um, a discussion in the person of Christ, uh, this Christology, look, seeking to understand who Christ is as... Um, one as the one who is both fully God and fully man, and that's going to be the subject in future weeks. Um, tonight, I do want to uh, complete our um, consideration of the doctrine of the Trinity, not in the sense that uh, we will have said all that there is to be said, but um, at some point we need to uh, move forward to something else, and we'll come back to these considerations um, in the future. But here in this letter, notice what Paul says, as, he, as he's really introducing himself, he refers to himself as one who is an apostle. That's his calling as an apostle. And he was set apart. God set him apart for the, for the sake of the gospel, for the gospel of God. And then much of what he says after that is just expounding uh, this idea about the gospel of God, what it entails. And so you see in verse 2 of Romans 1, he says, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And so he, he speaks of this gospel message, this good news, as something that was foretold, that God um, foretold namely by the prophets, that is contained in the Scriptures, and it's something that concerns his son. And then he introduces these two ideas that, are the, um, that will be the point of future studies. The one is that he is, according to the flesh, he is the son of David. He is the one who is descended from David, and so therefore he is qualified to, um, to be the one who is the Christ, 
that promised son of David who was to come and who was to reign forever and ever. And yet that's not all that can be said of him. He's not just one who is descended, according to, uh, descended from David according to the flesh, but he's also one who is the son of God. And he says he was declared to be the son of God, or you could, you could uh, render that as he was uh, appointed or uh, um, recognized. Uh, there are different ways to render that, but we'll go with the idea here in the ESV of de- being declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. It's not, it's not that he's saying, of course, as we've seen in previous weeks, that this is how he became the Son of God. No, that this truth that he is the Son of God was uh, powerfully made known, was powerfully declared by the resurrection. In that act of raising Christ Jesus from the dead, God made known in a, in a final, uh, uh, clear way, a final, a powerful way, that this indeed is the Son of God. And that's what we're going to uh, finish um, considering tonight as we turn back to Matthew chapter 28. And we uh, come to the end of our, um, our survey of Matthew's gospel as we focused particularly on how Matthew uh, presents the doctrine of the Trinity to us. We're going to look at the Great Commission. What I'll do is I'll actually read the entirety of Matthew 28, but our focus really will be verses 16 through 20. So look with me at Matthew 28, verse 1, and we'll read to the end of the chapter. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen. As he said, Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, and ran to tell his disciples And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and and told the chief priests all that had taken place. When they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, They gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age.
I said we're going to focus on verse 16 through 20, and I think um, I think this. It, uh, the, well, the reason why we're going to focus on these verses is because it, these really helpfully encapsulate the core of what we're uh, what we believe when it comes to the doctrine of the Trinity, what we believe as Christians concerning our triune God. We can see all of the elements here, uh, but let me put it to you as a quiz. We've talked in previous weeks about the four basic affirmations. Uh, what are some of those basic affirmations concerning the doctrine of the Trinity that all Christians for 20 centuries have believed, or should, ha- should believe, anyway, concerning our triune God? What's one crucial affirmation? There's one God, right? There is just one God. Not many gods, not three gods. There is one God. What's a second core basic affirmation of the doctrine of the Trinity? Even simpler than that. There's one God. Where does the number three come in? There are three persons. There's a little song that that the kids learn. You want to sing it, Lisa? How many persons? So now you have that earworm in your, in your head. And you always know the answer. There are three persons in one God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, which does lead to that third affirmation. Uh, if you were to express uh, uh, a third affirmation concerning the doctrine of the Trinity, what might it be? If there's one God and there are three persons, sure, the, 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 we could, we could say, put it this way, is that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are co-eternal, are co-equal, that, they, 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 that each person shares fully in the divine nature. There's not a hierarchy. There's not a, uh, one being greater and one being lesser in terms of a divine nature, that, that each person of the Godhead shares fully, not partially, but fully in the divine nature. But... That doesn't mean they're identical. So we get to this fourth affirmation. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are distinguished by eternal relations of origin. Which is just saying that essentially the word Father, and the word Son, and the word Spirit are meaningful designations. They're not arbitrary terms that we apply that we could just choose any term we want. That God the Father has always been the Father. Because the Son, always and eternally, has this quality of sonship where he is from the Father. The, uh, the, the classic terminology that, that theologians have used is called eternal generation. Eternal generation. I, I don't ask that you remember that kind of language, but basically we're just saying that the Son has always been the Son. And that Son is a meaningful term. It's not just an arbitrary designation. He is always from the Father. He is the one who is the only begotten Son, is always begotten. And that's hard for us to wrap our minds around because we want to think of that term begotten as something that happens in time, not as something that's always a true quality. But when it comes to, when it comes to God who exists outside of time, there is not a beginning of the begottenness. There's no change. We know this to be true of God, that God does not change. I, the Lord, do not change, he says. And James tells us there's no shadow of 
change or shifting in him. Uh, God is, is not subject to change. There's not a time when he became father. How could that be if he does not change? He's always been father, son, and Holy Spirit. But this was not always known. So if you, if you recall back to uh, previous uh, studies, how is it that God made known the fact that he is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit eternally and forever? That's right. As simple as that. In the fullness of time, God sent his Son. And we, we, can, we can go back to the baptism of Christ, the baptism of Jesus in the Jordan River, and we hear the, the words spoken, this is my beloved Son, whom I am well pleased. And we have this, this watershed revelatory moment in history, this extraordinary moment when God publicly makes known to the world that he is Father and Son. He hasn't fully explained all that that means, that, but he's made that known, at least in this first um, initial way there at the Jordan in pronouncing, this is my beloved Son. We saw those words again spoken in um, the Transfiguration. When Jesus is transfigured on the mount, he stands there with Elijah and Moses, and then the voice comes from the cloud, this is my beloved son, whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. We have the revelation by the Father of the Son. And we have, at the same time, the Son making known the Father. Uh, we, we, we did note this, from, uh, particularly from Matthew 11, Verses 25 through 27. In fact, I'll turn there, and I think this is a really important and crucial text. We think about the doctrine of the Trinity. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. So we see that Jesus here is addressing the Father as both Father and Lord of heaven and earth. There is a... um, uh, it's just theological terminology um, that you don't need to remember, but there's these distinctions that may be helpful for you. The difference between proper predication and common predication. Proper predication is a way of speaking of those things that, which you can only say about one of the persons of the Trinity, right? So only God the Father is Father. So that when Jesus addresses him as Father, that's proper predication. When he addresses him as Lord of heaven and earth, That's common predication. In other words, uh, Jesus is Lord of heaven and earth. The Son is Lord of heaven and earth. The Spirit is Lord of heaven and earth. This is proper of God. So it's not not wrong to refer to the Father as Lord of heaven and earth. It's just recognizing that this is is something that's shared. This is true of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So we have both of those, both that terminology. It's a way of saying that he's both Father and he's God, right? Father... I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Then he goes on to say, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. And we're going to hear that language echoed again in the Great Commission. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And in Matthew, then, we've seen you know, that, that the Father and the Son have this mutual knowledge that is unique, that only the Son knows the Father in this clear and, 
and full and, and uh, intimate way, and only the Father knows the Son. And yet, in Matthew, we're seeing that the Father is revealing the Son, and the Son is revealing the Father. We reflected on how often in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is speaking to the people about how they can relate to God as Father. Your Father, your Father, your Father, he says. And then when he speaks about, when he speaks of my Father, you see that there is a different quality to that relationship. That there is a, um, there's a different privileged position that he enjoys as the one who is in a unique position to make known the Father. So as Map said, if we summarize all that, we know, uh, we come to know that God is triune in the sending of the Son. Because in the sending of the Son, the Son makes known the Father, and the Father makes known the Son. We observed, of course, this also, this is all in the power of the Spirit. It's the Spirit who is empowering the Son in his, in his, in his life, in his ministry. It is the um, Spirit, likewise, who is sent by the Father, who uh, the Father causes to rest upon the Son to empower him in his ministry. And it is the, uh, the, the Son speaking as he explains his ministry, who makes known the Spirit, speaking about how the, uh, uh, the Spirit's work in his life. And it's also something that is spoken of through the prophets, through Isaiah, for example. Behold my servant, whom I uphold. He says, I will make my spirit rest. I put my spirit upon him. Right? You see God speaking about these triune works, uh, these revelations of the, um, the Father, Son, and the Spirit. So the point that I'm simply trying to make is that we come to know God as triune in this revelatory act of sending the Son, and then, you know, he continues to unfold it in the sending of the Spirit, particularly at Pentecost then, and you can look through it in the book of Acts and see how, as God sends his Spirit uh, uh, to indwell his people, to cause his people to be born again, there is a further revelatory work that is being accomplished there. So um, this is how we know that God is triune. Now, speaking about eternal uh, relations of origin, I mentioned that the Son is eternally begotten, that he is, uh, he is from the Father in an eternal way. And the Spirit, likewise, is from the Father and the Son. The language that we use is uh, one of procession. He proceeds from the Father, and he proceeds from the Son, and this you can see, uh, especially in John's Gospel, in the way that uh, in, in John 14 through 16, the way that Jesus speaks about uh, the Spirit in the upper room discourse. But you can also see it, um, for example, in Luke, that the way that Jesus will speak about the Spirit as the, uh, the gift and the promise of the Father, whom he will pour out, uh, who, who uh, Jesus will send upon his people, and I'll save some of that discussion for our sermons in the, uh, on Sunday mornings as we look to the Luke's gospel to see that. But just know that this is also, um, uh, that th- this uh, procession, if you will, this relationship whereby the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son is um, uh, just, just in the same way that the Son is distinguished from the Father as one who is eternally begotten, the Spirit is distinguished from the Father and the Son as one who eternally proceeds from the Father and the Son. Again, what are we saying if we just step back and say, simplify this? We're just saying that the word spirit is not an arbitrary term. It's a meaningful term. It's eternal, uh, eternally true of the Holy Spirit. So we come to Matthew 28 then, and we, um, we've skipped past 
um, Jesus' trial, his arrest, his crucifixion. We have taken note in the course of our study together of his mighty works and how in his mighty works he is revealing something of his divine identity because he's doing things that only God does. And he's made this known quite clearly. Now as we come to Matthew 28, we continue to see evidences of his divine nature. Let me ask you just to uh, reflect on what we read and um, point out some of those things. How do we see his uh, divine nature um, attested in Matthew 28? What stands out? They worshipped him. Absolutely. Twice we see that. I'm sorry, I interrupted you. Go ahead. Yeah. In verse 9, Behold, Jesus met them. These are the women who came to the tomb. And said greetings, and they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then again in verse 17, this is after he comes to greet the disciples in Galilee, and when they saw him, they worshipped him. You don't worship men. You don't worship even angels. In the Old Testament, angels were glorious, and people were tempted to worship them, and they'd say, don't do that. Right? And you see it even in the book of Acts when people were tempted to worship the apostles. Peter says, I'm just a man like you. Get up, get up on your feet. I'm a man of a like nature to you. But they worship Jesus because he, though he is a man, he also is God. And in that sense, he's not of a like nature to us. And so we see that uh, this is important. I know it's so, it, it, uh, at the first, first blush, it strikes us as so... Um, obvious, right? They worshipped him, therefore he's God. But we do need to step back and reflect on this because of the way that so many in our world speak about this doctrine. Um, uh, some, you might, you know, someday you might pick up a commentary uh, or you might pick up um, a book off the shelf or you might just be talking with someone on the street who has read in some books and seems to think that the doctrine of the Trinity was something that was invented in the year 325 AD at the Council of Nicaea. And, uh, or, you know, maybe they'll be generous and say it developed uh, uh, in, in the century before and was codified then. But they, they certainly don't believe that it was something that the earliest Christians believed. Well, in order to make that claim, you can't really believe that this is historical, historically accurate. You've got to believe that this is a tradition that developed. Matthew 28 is a tradition that developed many years later and doesn't actually reflect the real situation. Of course we reject that. Um, of course we, we, don't, uh, we, we, we don't give much credence to that. But you should be aware that it's common enough. It's, it's common enough that um, you might encounter someone who thinks that this is the case. And they may, you know, you, you're probably not going to find yourself in a lot of arguments with, um, you know, college professors and, and the writers of commentaries, but you might meet someone on the street who's just not really aware you can point them, simply point them to the text and say, you know, it looks to me like um, uh, within three days of his death, they've, they've all at least come to some conclusion that he's to be receiving their worship, and he's commissioning them with, um, with a charge to go and baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Uh, what do you think that means? You know, Do you think that that indicates... They didn't believe in the doctrine of the Trinity from the very earliest days or, or the seminal uh, commission they received 
whereby they were sent into all the earth was from the very beginning a Trinitarian commission. It's important for us to see right from the very start. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. You will encounter that if you do engage with Jehovah's Witnesses because they are, they have been taught in their terms of their doctrine that, that Jesus is to be regarded as some kind of lesser deity. That he is somehow like pseudo-divine, but he's not quite on the level of the Father. That's their, their doctrine, that he's a created being. Yes, Karen, question. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's certain, not all Pentecostal uh, is like that. Yeah, there's a, um, there are different, I, I don't know all the, all the background and all the different um, uh, Pentecostal beliefs, but at least in one segment of it, there's a, um, it's, I think it's called like oneness theology. Yeah, we, I had a, a couple came to our church in Ohio and I taught a Sunday school on the Trinity and um, they didn't like it much because they came from that background and um, I know that they, the, the pastor there had to kind of work with them through some of these issues, but they are taught similar ideas, ideas that would be similar to what you, you would get from a Jehovah's Witness. Um, people have a hard time with how can the one be three? How can the three be one? Um, and so it's really important to get that language of nature or essence or being and person and, and, and clear, clarify the distinction here. We're talking about one being, one essence, that God is one, but then we have persons, or sometimes in, in history we've used the language subsistence, and we're just trying to express how it could be three and one at the same time. So um, uh, you, know, you know the name John Adams and Abigail Adams? They were... Uh, he was a founding father. Uh, they were, example, they were from Puritans in, in terms of their um, heritage. But by the time uh, they were born, Unitarianism was a very common thing in, the, in, in the, this country, and they were Unitarians. A Unitarian would be similar to this. They don't believe in the triunity of God. They, they just can't understand how the three can be one. And for them, it was a logical impossibility. You're either one, it's either one or three, but it's not, can't be the same. So again, it comes back to how we clearly articulate we're not saying one being and three beings we're not saying one person and three persons we're saying one being in three persons three persons in one being one nature um, ways that we can express that from scripture take um, Colossians 1 15 through 20 this is speaking about Christ he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So you have descriptions here that uh, would not be proper to any but God but we're clearly speaking about Christ. He is the one who sustains all things, holds all things together. 
He is the image of the invisible God. He is the head, goes on to say he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, speaking of his resurrection, that in everything he might be preeminent. And then verse 19 is so important. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. All the fullness of God dwelt bodily in Christ. And through him to reconcile all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. It's a very powerful uh, and clear declaration of his divinity, his equality with God. Similarly, in, in Hebrews 1, this is another uh, really important text. Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Here, verse 3 is key. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. It goes on from there, but I, I, I want to key on that, that first half of verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God. This, speaks of, this is a way of speaking of that, that relationship, that eternal relationship of begottenness. Radiance kind of captures that idea of fromness. He is the radiance of what? The glory of God and then the exact imprint of his nature. He's not just part of the na- exact. So what, when we talk about the distinction between the father and the son, the only distinction is that quality of fromness, that quality of sonship. The only distinction is, is, is that the father is begotten of none. He is from himself and no, uh, he, he exists within himself. Whereas the Son is from no one but the Father. He is from the Father. So there's that one description that is different for the Son than, than is for the Father. So we do have a distinction, but it's not a distinction of nature. It's not a, um, there, he's the exact imprint of his nature. So Hebrews 1, if you just remember those texts, Colossians 1, 15 through 20, Hebrews 1, 1 through 4, they're helpful to express this reality of, of the Son's uh, full deity, his full equality with God. And, you know, if the question then turns to the Spirit, um, really, in, in history, the argument has been about proving that the Spirit is a person. Um, but uh, the... the the main argument has always been concerning the Son. How, what do we think about Christ? Uh, Gregory of Nazianzus in his, in his um, five theological orations has this wonderful paragraph where he, he's dealing with the, uh, the personhood of the Spirit, the personality of the Spirit. And he basically says, um, well, who am I addressing? Am I addressing someone who, who understands the nature of the Son correctly? And if so, the same arguments I use for those ones, they apply to this one. All right, so let's move on. It's kind of, um, uh, and then he says, but if you don't accept that, then we don't have anything to discuss. Uh, so um, I won't dwell on that point, but um, uh, in any case, looking back at Matthew 28, we, 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 um, Matt pointed out the idea of worshiping, that they worship him as a evidence of his, that they're, they've, they're already come to recognize his deity, that he is one who deserves his, their worship, he is worthy of their worship. How do we see indications in this text of the equality 
of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Karen. That's all right. That's right. Absolutely. Yeah. So notice how he says that. It says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Notice a few things. First, the main command here is to make disciples. Make disciples. Go, uh, you, could, you could render it like this. Going, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the, of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And so you get the sense that uh, going and baptizing and teaching are aspects of this disciple-making process, and that's the main command. Uh, it's a bit complex um, to explain how, but um, go does have a kind of imperative, you know, the force of an imperative, even though it's, it's going, you know, it's also descriptive in some sense. So there is a sense of you are to go and do this, not just stick around. And um, Sometimes people want to minimize the go as if that's not that important. It, it does matter. Um, but the main point here is the, the main command is making disi make disciples. But that's what we're commanded to do. And how are we to do that? We're to go to the ends of the earth and we're to uh, engage in, um, in uh, evangelistic work that will involve both uh, baptizing and teaching. And the, that, that baptizing work involves baptizing in the name. Notice that name, it's singular. Not in the names of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so you have an indication both of unity, of the one God, the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and also the triunity, that there are three persons in, um, in whose name uh, we are baptizing people. So it's not, obviously you need a lot of other passages of scripture like the ones we've looked at in the weeks past to fully flesh this out. But you see right from the start again that indication of the doctrine of the Trinity is built into our mission, into um, our mission as the church. We're to be making disciples in the name of the one God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So yeah, Karen, you're right. There is an indication of that full equality uh, that, that, there, that each person of the Godhead is listed alongside the others. Um, notice also that uh, that, um, that phrase, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And we, we go back also and we reflect on how in Matthew chapter 11, uh, verse 27, Jesus said, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. Uh, there's this indication of the authority being received. So one of the things that um, the theologians rightly recognize is that what we see in, um, in the revelation of the triune God in history reflects something of his eternal nature. When we talk about the Son being eternally begotten, we see that his authority is received from the Father. It never, it's never described in the other way. The Father never receives authority from the Son. It's always in that one direction. Look at, uh, turn over with me to John chapter 5. I'll give you some 
uh, other examples of this, this um, pattern. In John chapter 5, verse 19, notice the way that Jesus speaks about, um, about his relationship to the Father in this passage. And I'll uh, give you some context. Jesus has just healed a man on the Sabbath. As often happens, this created controversy. And he um, explained what he was doing by saying, my father is working until now and I am working. Okay, in verse 17. So they want to kill him because he um, is calling God his own father and he's making himself equal with God. They understand that that assertion is making himself equal with God. He goes on to explain and to instruct in this way in verse 19. Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. We'll stop there for a moment and just um, remind you of something I brought up two weeks ago that I, I know was a bit confusing. I mentioned this, this idea of inseparable operations, and Matt and I had some discussions about this afterward. Uh, it, inseparable does not mean indistinguishable. Um, let me explain what I mean. When we talk about the way in which God acts outside of himself, right? There's, an, there's, there's the internal life of God, and that's characterized by the triune life. But when God acts upon the world, acts outside himself, all his actions are inseparable. And, and the reason why I make this point is because I don't want you to have in your mind this idea of, yes, I know that, that the three persons are one God, and yet you still you conceive of them as sort of like this divine committee of independent actors where... The Father does his thing, and the Son does his thing, and the Spirit does his thing. I've heard, I've heard um, well-known preachers speak that way, as if that's the way that God works, as if, um, you know, the, the, the Father says, I'm going to go over here and create the world now, and the Son says, I think, I think I'll solve this problem that, that arose from the fall. I, I don't want to go any further speaking like that, because it's just not the way that we ought to think about God. So when we talk about inseparable operations were saying every external work of God is a work of the triune God. It doesn't mean that we can't distinguish one person from another in those actions, but think of the incarnation, for example. Only the Son became incarnate, and yet the work of the incarnation was a work of the triune God. Right? How did Mary conceive so that the Son took on flesh, the Spirit came upon her? Right? This was something that God the Father ordained, right? And so we, we, there's, a, there's, a, there's a, sometimes we use the language of from the Father through the Son in the Spirit. This is the way that all the external works of God, uh, the pattern they all work through. So who created the world? The Father created the world. The Son created the world. The Spirit created the world. 
but it's not like the father did a little bit over here and the son then did his part over here. The one triune God did one work of inseparable work of creation. The father created the world through the son in the spirit. Yes, Karen. Yes. It's still true. It, it doesn't. It, there's no denial there that that the, that uh, of the Father's sustaining work and holding all things together. Um, it's just we're putting the uh, the focus here on Christ as one who is the one who's. It, it, um, it, it's what I remember that common predication. What I can say of the Son, I can say of the Father in this respect, and that sustaining work of God. It's it's an inseparable work. Uh, it's not. It's not just one person of the of the triune Godhead doing this, and we, yeah, yes, yes, and so we see that a little bit here in in, in John five, and we see why that's the case when the, when the way that Jesus way that way speaks about what he does, saying, "Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord." In other words, he doesn't have an independent will where he, you know, doesn't, I'm going to just go and do my thing right now. He doesn't act in a way that's independent of the Father. The nature of his sonship, of being the Son of God, is not like that, where he, he can just act of his own accord. He says, I, the Son can do nothing, can't do anything of his own accord, but only what he sees his Father doing. And you flip it around from another perspective and you see for whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. That's whatever the Father does. And for the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. Right? So that the Father is, you know, Jesus speaks often in this way in John's Gospel, that his works are the Father's works. There's not a separation. There's not a, um, there's not th this independent agency, if you will. And that's, um, that's helpful, I think, because it guards us against veering into this sort of implicit polytheism, right, of just conceiving of God as three separate entities. Even if we say, no, no, we believe in one God, we, we want to kind of guard against that conception, um, which is why theologians often emphasize this idea of inseparable operations. Doesn't mean that we can't distinguish the work of the Spirit, for example, in applying salvation to us and sanctifying us. But we don't say, well, that's just the Spirit acting of His own independent accord, if you will. Now, the, the, these external works are a work of the triune God, from the Father, through the Son, in the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, lost my train of thought. So in any case, um, John 5 is a helpful text, and, and there's a, it's, it's a very rich text, which we don't have time to consider in all its detail. But um, it is showing us something of that unity of action. And I, I remember now I was talking about how the way in which God works in the world reflects something of his, of his eternal being, of his eternal nature. right? And so 
when we see in verse 18 of Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, right? That direction, if you will, of it being given to the Son from the Father, that follows from that eternal uh, relationship, right? It, it, it is, um, it's consistent with that eternal relationship of fromness, of the Son being the one from the Father. And so you'll never find in Scripture um, that kind of, you know, certainly the, the Son gives glory to the Father, the Son loves the Father, the Son will deliver at the end all the kingdoms back up to the Father uh, to his glory, but it's, it's um, but he doesn't, but the, but the Father doesn't receive authority from the Son, right? It goes in that direction from Father to the Son. And that is a, uh, theologian will recognize that that is uh, consistent with that eternal nature. That well, we see the outworking of it in history and the in history of Revelation is consistent with that eternal reality. So in any case, just to, to sum it all up, to bring it all together, in the Great Commission, from the very beginning of the church, from the very sending of the apostles to go and make disciples, Jesus sent his disciples with a Trinitarian commission. He sent them to make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is not a, not something that was developed and invented many years later, as you all know. Um, but I want, I want you to see why that's so. And so that's why, in part, why we have spent these few weeks looking at Matthew and not, say, John, which I think is another great place where we can look, where t- people tend to look um, when they want to understand the doctrine of the Trinity because John speaks so much of the deity of Christ. But I want you to see that it's not just John. It's Matthew. We can see it in Mark. We can see it in Luke. We can see it in all of the New Testament witness because it was something that was revealed in the very sending of the Son in that time in history when Christ came and lived among us. And because God revealed himself as triune in the sending of the Son, so we believe and so we confess that one God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let me ask if there are any questions or comments um, before we go to prayer. comments from the back? Yes, Scott. For the recording, if I could summarize. Scott, that's all right. Scott was just reflecting on the, on the wisdom of God in the, um, in the way in which he ordained things when you consider, I think, polytheism and history and how man for thousands of years has made gods in his own image. And, um, you know, uh, something like divine committees and jealous gods and all kinds of scandal. In the, in the pantheon of, of deities. And then when the one true God reveals himself in the person of Christ, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a unity that's revealed. Uh, it, it's a complete, something completely different that man would not have considered. And it's a glorious reflection of his wisdom. I think that's, uh, I, I encourage you and just say that that's what when we talk about these things, the doctrine of the Trinity, that's what it should, it should move us to worship. It should move us to that kind of reflection. Um, this is not a doctrine that's just about uh, filling our minds with academic jargon. It's not about um, impressing our friends with how much we know. 
It's about learning to praise God uh, as he has made himself known and to, um, and to uh, revel in that and to, and to glory, uh, glorify him and to glory in uh, the joy of knowing um, God as he's revealed himself in Christ through the Holy Spirit whom he's given us so that we might cry out to him, Abba, Father, as Paul puts it in Galatians 4. So uh, with that, let's pray, and then we'll spend some time praying together too. Father in heaven, we do praise and glorify you and thank you that you have made yourself known to us by sending your son, Jesus Christ, whom you indeed have appointed the heir of all things, the only one who is worthy of such thing. For he is indeed eternally begotten Son of God, our maker, our creator. So we praise you, O Lord, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who has done this great work in our lives. May we praise you evermore with these words, with our minds, as we seek to comprehend and understand what you have given us to understand in your revealed word. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's.